Welcome to The VoIP Show. I am your host, Joshua. And on this episode, our guest is astrophotographer Jonathan. Recently, I had seen pictures of the moon on Reddit. And in many of these pictures, there was the International Space Station in front of the moon. I found this quite fascinating and I was very curious about the kind of technology it would take for someone to take a picture of this from their own home. As many of the posts I've seen in this certainly didn't seem to be from NASA or any professional organization. You know, with with the kind of detail we saw, it's far beyond what we can see with our own eyes. I mean, my wife and I had over the years taken a look at the International Space Station from our home in a city where there was light noise and uh, maybe not the clearest atmosphere. And you could certainly, certainly still see the International Space Station, but it was so much clearer and so much more present when we were up at Mammoth Lakes, California, where you're at about five, 6,000 feet of ele- uh, elevation. The, cl- the sky is completely clear and there is zero light noise. So in thinking about you know the power of a telescope and some of the extra detail you could see, I had reached out to Jonathan to find out what had got him started. So Jonathan, what got you started with taking pictures of our universe? Uh, so I first stumbled into astrophotography um, just basically based on my love of the night sky and uh, pretty much uh, an obsession I've had with space all my life. I, um, I grew up looking at books of space and just have always, you know, as a kid, wanted to be an astronaut, same as pretty much everyone else. Um, and as I kind of went throughout uh, life and stumbled into a spot where I found myself able to afford a camera, I took it out into the, uh, out into the darkness uh, in the high deserts of California, where I was at the time, kind of staying in a hotel and didn't have anything else to do. So on the weekends, I took that out there and started taking pictures of the sky. And that was really kind of how I found my way, just sort of learning as I went. I read your article in Petapixel, which I thought was fascinating. And I learned that there are several different types of astrophotography. You'd mentioned nightscapes, deep sky objects, planets, solar and lunar. Uh, you specifically mentioned that you were interested in planets. What drew your attention to planets? Uh, so in reality, I actually find all of them fascinating. Um, the uh, the planetary is kind of the one I've been focusing on at the moment the most right now, uh, mostly because my gear is uh, kind of optimized for that, if you will. Uh, one of the realities is they, uh, most people ask me, you know, what's the best telescope, which is, it's a really difficult question to ask because it's open-ended. Um, it'd be like saying, what's the best camera for anything else? And it really depends on what you're shooting at. Um, so as usual, uh, you know, you kind of have a goal in mind of what you want to do. And as you start stumbling into something, uh, you realize maybe it wasn't exactly what you thought you were buying. And I ended up <laughs> buying this gear that I got, uh, which at the time, my goal when I first got a telescope was see the planets, because obviously everybody wants to see like the rings of Saturn, and they think that's sort of the most exciting thing out there. Um, So when I did all that, in turn, the equipment that I have to uh, take pictures is kind of uh, perfect for planetary imaging. So I'm really, I've really been focusing on that. Um, And coincidentally, 2020 was all the the bad things that have been happening has actually been really good for astronomy. Uh, we did one of our closest approaches to Mars um, that we've seen in a long time, uh, beaten only by the last uh, two years. And then Mars is again going to be, uh, or it was this year, as close as it's going to be for the next 15 years. So uh, all of that put together has kind of made a nice uh, culminating point where I've been working on taking a lot of good planetary pictures. 
You know, it's interesting because my wife and I take a walk at night. And uh, as we loop around the neighborhood, uh, we could see Mars coming together. And, and it actually reminded me when I was in, my gosh, I must have been in fourth or fifth grade. Mars and Venus were coming closer to closer. And, and at night, we were supposed to go out and look and kind of chart like, you know, with our fingers or hands or however close they were getting. And it reminded me of that. And I think one of the earlier lessons I probably can remember about um, astronomy, even even at that kind of a, of a basic level. And so I, I think I think there's a perspective gained looking up at the stars. And, you know, recently, um, well, not recently, I guess, with COVID, but recently in my mind as in the last year, we went to um, San Francisco and we watched a uh, show with Brian Cox. Are you familiar with him? Uh, I am not. Yeah, he's a, a physicist, I guess. And one of the most interesting things he had mentioned is the rarity of life. And that although the universe is 13 billion years old, it took 3 billion years for multicellular life to um, show up on Earth. And that in the universe, for there not to be some kind of cataclysmic event to a planet that had, you know, basic life, that this might be a very rare event and that we might be rare and special and that we should take care of the place we live in, right? So to me, I thought that was yeah. uh, pretty amazing. He obviously had some amazing uh, photographs and some perspectives. But, you know, looking back at our own planet, I think is, is something that's interesting as well. Unfortunately, we can't do that. But I did read in your article, and for anyone listening, I will put it in the description so you can refer to it, that you took your first picture with an iPhone. Tell us that story. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. So um, as as much as I've loved space, I, uh, for just sad, no good reason other than I just never got around to it, um, I really didn't get to look into a telescope until way later in life than I wish I had. Um, and so um, I, I did some research, I got a bonus from work, and I had I had some discretionary cash finally that I was able to use to buy my first telescope and uh, I ended up going probably a little bigger than the average person on their first telescope and bought an 11 inch uh, aperture uh, Celestron 1100 in order to like I said see the planets whereas so a, I did that whereas a different oh, style whereas a different style wide field telescope isn't as good for seeing something so specific right uh, yeah, in general, um, when you're buying a telescope, the bigger the telescope, the narrower the field of view. Um, so a very small telescope sees a wide part of the night sky. Uh, if you think about it, your eyes are a little bit like a telescope and that they're, they're really small and they see a whole big field, for instance. And then binoculars help you get a little bit more um, telos or a little bit more magnification, but it sees less of the sky. A telescope does the same thing, and the bigger the telescope gets, the less of the sky you see, but the piece that you're seeing is magnified a lot more. So to see planets, you generally speaking would like a bigger telescope. Um, so I bought that, and uh, one of the first two things I saw were Saturn and Jupiter, which uh, were prominent coincidentally when I bought it. I didn't even realize that at the time as I was still in the learning phase. But uh, I looked through, and I saw Jupiter there, and you could easily see Jupiter and the cloud bands and four of the Galilean moons, the same exact thing that Galileo saw 400 years ago when he discovered that there were things orbiting things in the sky. 
Uh, and of course, the first thing you want to do is show your friends. So you take your camera and hold it up to the eyepiece and try and take a picture of this magnificent sight you see, uh, and it comes out abysmal. <laughs> That's not how we take uh, planetary pictures usually. Um, it, your, your phone is, one, a really bad camera, and then two, trying to hold it steady with your hands through an eyepiece where uh, you're using your eyes, which are actually a really phenomenal camera. Um, compared to what your phone is able to do. Uh, you try and hold that steady and collect that faint light data that's coming from uh, you know, millions or billions of miles away, depending on the target. Uh, and it actually comes out pretty bad. That's funny. You, you mentioned Galileo. And in your article, you had mentioned that as early as 1900, the early 1900s, we thought that the farthest object away was the Milky Way. And by comparison, it's not that far at all to other objects. So it's kind of interesting to think about how as a, as a society or as a research community, our perspective on this topic has changed in the last hundred years. Um, and how now, you know, you can do something that they couldn't do, you know, probably 30, 40 years ago. So I guess a question I have is oh, while we're on that topic, what kind of technology changes have you seen since you started that have made it so that it's either easier for people who are at an amateur level or maybe that you know about on a higher end level that give us more knowledge? Um, so perhaps I don't have the best uh, knowledge base on this. I've really, um, as decent as personally my opinion of my pictures is, um, I've actually only been seriously doing astrophotography for about the last almost two years. Um, so in that time, however, I have seen some advancements and a lot of them are coming in the camera field. Um, but having done the research, I think in about the last five to 10 years, there've just been leaps and bounds on what people have realized that they're able to do with the technology that exists. Um, for instance, if you take a look back, you know, you talk about um, we thought that the Milky Way was the only thing around uh, or the furthest object. And then later we discovered there was more. Uh, that discovery was made by Hubble, the gentleman for whom the telescope is now named. Uh, he did that by looking at astrophotographs taken by astronomers who the term astrophotographer wasn't really a thing yet, but uh, his colleagues had been taking glass plate photography using telescopes and they were taking them of Andromeda and the uh, Andromeda galaxy, that is. And inside of that, he used the data from about a month's worth of observations and a variable star that he found. And he was able to time the variable sequence of that star and knowing a physics relationship between that and its brightness, he was able to determine how bright that star should look compared to how bright it does look. And then realized, well, that star must be so far away. And doing that, he came up with a rough uh, calculation for an order of magnitude of how far away that galaxy was, which, of course, blew away the size of the Milky Way. Um, so those folks were doing all of that with literal like glass plate photography, which is kind of what you saw in the Civil War era when cameras were first invented. Uh, nowadays, we're taking them with just anything from digital, uh, normal DSLR type cameras for um, for the long range galaxy shots. And so the process hasn't changed a whole lot, but the technology has gotten a lot finer. Um, some of the more interesting ones though have been in the planetary field where instead of taking an actual like snapshot, like a camera, like you're used to with every other photo you've ever taken, 
Instead, we take videos um, and we do that to try and overcome the atmosphere of the earth. And as I take these millisecond long video frames over the course of about five minutes, I end up with thousands upon thousands of frames of say Mars. Uh, doing that, I'm able to try and pull the tiniest little piece of Mars from each of those frames that's got just coincidentally still skies here on Earth, uh, which helps me to then find pieces of Mars that are clear throughout this capture process and assemble them back together into one clear picture. Um, because planetary images have this big problem where the Earth's atmosphere is bouncing the sky around all over the place, which distorts the light. That's why we see uh, twinkling in stars. That's exactly why we see twinkling, yes. And you're talking about a process called... We're trying to overcome that. Right, and you're talking about a process called lucky imaging, is that correct? Yes, yeah, that's how planetary imaging is done these days. So I like how you describe that. So if I'm understanding this correctly, um, sort of like the variability that you were talking about before, you're seeing maybe in some moment of the atmospheric interference that distorts the light, maybe one clear spot on certain section of the planet and lucky imaging then takes these thousands of images that you create when you take them, you know, a quick millisecond image, and it says, this is a good spot, this is a good spot, this is a good spot, and then it puts it all together for one image. Is that correct? Uh, that is generally right. The, the only add-on to that is because of how dim the single frame is, it actually takes, say, out of 20,000 shots. It does exactly what you're saying, but it'll take maybe... 3,000 in one section, 3,000 in another, and 3,000 in another, and it does what you're talking about, but it takes those packets of 3,000 or so, and it will then average those together, which then lowers the noise floor and raises the signal from the data to help get rid of some of the, uh, the fuzziness of the image as well. Um, but otherwise, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it works. And you could think of the noise floor as maybe the distortion in view the uh, when you couldn't see something so clearly, right? Um, well, that actually, the noise is generally speaking because the images are coming from uh, such kind of a dim perspective. I take like a millisecond shot of Mars. I really don't get that many photons from the planet itself in that. Um, so as they hit the uh, as they hit the camera sensor, if you see just a single frame, which you can see that in the article, if you zoom in on it, it's got a lot of noise in there. Uh, the stacking process helps get rid of the noise the process of using all the different segments um, around the uh, planet that also helps get rid of the atmospheric distortion. Interesting. I, I find it fascinating that you have to use so many images and I have to ask, does that take a lot of data storage? Uh, yes, it really does. <laughs> Actually, when I do a sequence on Mars, um, I, I recently, um, if you dig through my Instagram and such, or even go onto the NASA Astronomy Photo of the Day page, I was highlighted on October 6th, which was our uh, closest approach with Mars, uh, because for seven months I've been doing a sequence of Mars between March and, at the time, October, uh, and I carried it all the way into uh, the middle of October, I guess. Um, and so I've been taking pictures of Mars throughout that, and each one of them to show how big the planet has gotten between the start and the finish, um, between our close pass by the, by the two planets. Um, and each of those is a compilation of thousands upon thousands of pictures, and each of those has a red, a green, and a blue channel of data, and then multiple different runs throughout the night that I've taken. 
Um, and each single, uh, I do about 90 second videos of Mars when I take those, each one of those comes out to about 500 megs or so. Um, so a whole data run takes gigabytes of data. That must be fascinating to be starting off a couple of years and then it, is, is it a hallmark of some kind to be recognized as the photo of the day by NASA? Uh, yes, actually, that was a pretty big honor. I was quite proud of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all have I things. I that in there and got selected. And yeah, that was that was quite the treat when they sent me an email and said that I was going to be featured as the Mars photo for the Mars Pass. That's pretty that's pretty amazing. I mean, we all have things we do and, and we've had certain accolades. I don't think I've ever had a national agency of such recognition give me one. So I'm I'm happy for you. That's fantastic. I think that's um that's something that's that's interesting. You start off in a hobby and, and you end up with something that you probably didn't start this thinking, Oh, I want to be photo of the day for NASA. <laughs> Uh, no, honestly, you know, a lot of this has been a, a process of discovery as I have not, uh, I didn't know much about what I didn't know about this. And the more I learned, the more I realized I don't know anything. So um, didn't know that there was even an astronomy photo of the day, for instance, at the time when I started it up. And uh, once you get into the community a bit, you, know, you start to recognize kind of the the people that continue to produce good images and things like that. And then you start to see where the recognition shows up and, and the, uh, the a pod as it's called is a pretty popular one, um, which obviously they get flooded. I'm assuming with, with inputs from all over the world every day. And uh, we like to think that they pick out just some of the best of the best. So it's really cool to be a part of that. Yeah. You know, and, and I think what you said there is a huge lesson, at least I embrace and, I think this is a time for more people to do is realizing what we do and don't know and being okay with not knowing. Um, I, I find that when I don't know something like, you know, and just being prepared for doing my first podcast in this arena, I really didn't know much about this field. I knew I liked the images. I knew it was interesting. My wife and I would, you know, specifically go to places to look at stuff, but we didn't take it any farther than that, right? We would just stare up at the sky and appreciate the natural view. But, you know, when you when you take on something and, and you learn something new, I think you grow. And, you know, NASA's mission is discovery and uh, taking a personal stride in that and having it connect up with them. I think that's amazing. And so that's pretty cool. I do want to get back to you had mentioned different channels. So you're talking about filters. And from reading your article, you had mentioned that there was UV infrared light, red light, and blue filters. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that process works and why that's important? What that yeah, lets you sure. what that lets you see, I guess, differently? Yeah, definitely. So um, as uh, if, if people aren't familiar, the light that we see as humans is spread out across the visible light spectrum. Uh, but throughout the entire electromagnetic spectrum, uh, you know, it's magnitudes wider than what our little eyes can see. We're, we're really just adapted to be able to see and hunt in the light of day uh, as produced by our own sun. And that's based on years upon years of our eyes just coming used to that. Um, our cameras, however, are designed to try to replicate that because that's what people want to see in their pictures. Uh, but they can actually do so much more. So you really have kind of two choices when you're going to take pictures with regard to astrophotography. You can either run a black and white camera uh, and then use filters, which block out certain light and let other light through, or you can use what's called a one-shot color camera. 
uh, both have their pluses and minuses. The one-shot color is phenomenally easier to use. And to be fair, they're getting so much better and better as time goes on that there's not a lot different between the two uh, as we're, we're kind of approaching a point where they're getting really similar with quality. Um, but with the black and white filter, what you can do is put, say, a red filter, uh, sorry, the black and white camera, you can put, say, a red filter in front of the camera and only red light gets through, which uh, has a couple advantages. On the black and white camera, every pixel is being used to record data. On a color camera, if I was pointing it up at the sky and I shoot at Mars, it has a built-in filter sequence over it called a Bayer filter or a Bayer matrix. Uh, and it breaks each pixel down to a color assignment. So imagine a square of four colors, two by two, uh, four pixels. Two of those are green, one's red, one's blue. On my black and white camera, I've got four pixels. I put a red filter over them, all four are red. So when I take a picture, the amount of red data that I get from Mars, taking a picture of the red planet, on the black and white camera, I get four times as much data in a single shot as I do in the color camera. Um, and depending on your target, that may or may not be a big deal, uh, but it allows you to get a lot more data fidelity as well as resolution if you're shooting at a high enough resolution scale with a black and white camera. But the downside is now I need to then change filters, possibly refocus to get green data, do the same for blue data. You usually want to get luminance data, which is just overall brightness data. And then you have to combine those all back together in order to get one coherent um, color picture that our eyes recognize as color because otherwise everything's black and white. Whereas your one shot color camera, you can take a picture and produce a color image instantly, but it may not have the resolution and the detail that you want uh, compared to your black and white camera. That's fascinating. I think I believe one of the, some of the early satellites used black and white because they could get higher resolution. Is that correct? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I'd, uh, I'm referring imagine... to satellites that, that left Earth's orbit and headed off into the universe. Uh, yeah, I gotcha. Um, I do believe that, every, I actually think I would have to look, but I think most all of our cameras that we have put out have been black and white with colored filters that they have the ability to check through. Um, and a lot, of, um, a lot of the unfortunate part with that is Everybody wants to know, what does it really look like? Like <laughs> if I flew out to, to Neptune and looked at it, what color is it? And the worst part about all of that is we don't 100% know. Right. So I can look through a telescope and see the color blue on Neptune with my eyes, but my eyes are really kind of suffering from distance and atmospheric distortion and the fact that it's so dim, so it starts to turn kind of gray because my color cells just aren't receiving it enough. Um, the cameras that we send out there, I believe are all black and white with different filters. And then someone takes that data and tries to put it back together, uh, but they don't always know because there's nothing to calibrate it off of because we don't have, we don't have a color chart of, sitting there yeah, right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So interestingly, what they've actually been doing, if you look at pictures of the curiosity Rover or any of those out on Mars and dig around on them, uh, often they have little color pucks just sitting on the side of the Rover. So when they take a picture in frame, they do have a color chart there so that they can help calibrate that to what we would see. Oh, interesting. So when the filters are used, what kind of details or features on an object that you're taking a picture of, what does that help you see? Um, so it really just depends on what you are looking at, um, since everything is kind of different. Um, if I'm looking at, say, deep sky objects, um, 
you can put a filter on that specifically kills out everything except for a very specific band in which hydrogen alpha, which is a very prominent um, molecule out in the galaxy or out in the universe, uh, it kills out everything except that. And so then that comes through and your camera, which sees down into the infrared bands, uh, even though our eyes can't, can pick that up. And then we can add that data into an image. Uh, more interesting with the stuff I've been working on lately are things like on Venus, where if I take a picture in the color band, even if I do mono imaging of red, green, and blue and put them all together, I still basically get just kind of a grayish, maybe slightly yellow circle because uh, Venus is just covered in clouds. Uh, interestingly, though, we know the clouds on Venus are made out of sulfuric acid. And we also know that that is absorb, uh, it absorbs ultraviolet light. And so when I put an ultraviolet filter in front of the camera, I'm able to pull out details of the clouds on Venus because now I'm starting to see structure based on light being absorbed and light being not, whether or not there's clouds there. Uh, so things like that can help us see things that our eyes never could. Interesting. In, in terms of difficulty, what are some of the hardest things that you had to go through when you started? Um, I would probably say the toughest aspect to this, and it's the one that it's a frustrating answer to people when they ask me, what can I do to make my images better? <laughs> but the reality is figure out how to use your equipment as best as possible to include focusing and a process called collimation. Uh, collimation is where you take the mirrors in your telescope and you have to adjust some screws on them to line them up as perfectly as possible. Uh, because inside of a telescope, at least in mine, mine has, I have a reflector telescope, so it has mirrors in it which bounce the light back and forth before it gets to the camera. Um, if those mirrors are out of alignment by even the tiniest amount, the light doesn't get perfectly pinpointed down onto my camera. Uh, going through that process is a very, very very delicate uh, sort of thing. And so getting that right and then being able to accurately focus the, um, the mirrors as well, which is, uh, it's different than collimation, but the end result uh, creates again, that pinpoint image that hits right onto the camera sensor at the right distance. Uh, being able to do both of those as good as possible is like the key to getting a clean astrophotography image with regard to like the planets, especially. Um, that's a, time-consuming process to learn how to collimate it and if you're doing it manually with just your eyeballs as your collimation tool uh, it gets kind of tough because you're trying to when you do a collimation process you're looking to make a circle inside of a circle which doesn't make much sense if you haven't seen it but uh, if you're just eyeballing that it's tough to know if you're precisely accurate so i've switched to a computer program that brings that image up and helps me to fine-tune it um, and getting all of that right has been finicky and difficult, but once I started learning how to do that, my images just reached the next level, frankly. Sounds like Galileo would have appreciated some kind of software like that. <laughs> <laughs> I am sure he would have. Um, interestingly, if, if people you know, think about Galileo looking at what he saw, I've got a pair of binoculars that do about 25 times magnification. Um, I set those up sometimes just on a tripod next to my telescope and look through them. Um, and you can see there's Jupiter and there's its moons, and you can totally just see those through a pair of binoculars. Um, his telescope is about 25 times magnification. So really looking through those binoculars is about what he saw. And if we look at it right now through binoculars, it doesn't seem like anything crazy. You think, oh, hey, there's some moons. That's interesting. I knew those were there. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, it bends your mind to think that 
someone past seeing or seeing that in the past just changed humanity. Right. And, and how far we thought, you know, we were from objects and how much objects or distance there was between us and whatever the end of it was right from our perspective at that time. I mean, it's my understanding, and I don't remember if the Hubble telescope was involved with this or not, that we can actually see back to the beginning of what they call the Big Bang 13 something billion years ago. And the images of that, you know, are only something that's recently possible. And it's kind of fascinating to me that within, you know, 100 years of technology, we've gone from, you know, a few billion years. Um, well, actually, I, uh, I don't know how far is the Milky Way from us? Uh, so we're actually in the Milky Way. So technically, uh, it goes from zero all the way out to a few hundred uh, Light years. Light years, I believe. I'd have to pull up the exact numbers. But, but we're not in billions. We're, we were 100 million, or we were in millions of light years in the 1900s. Uh, let me take a look real quick. I can Google that one while we sit here. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, the, the beauty of modern technology is if you don't know, you can just look it up. Right. And that honestly is about how I've gone with a bunch of this. Uh, a, a quick searching is a, yeah, I was off on a, on a few zeros there. Uh, 105,000 light years, roughly, is a guess. Okay. Um, so we went. An estimate, but yeah. So in 100 years, we went from uh, thousands to billions, right? That's a, that's a massive difference in perspective. And to me, I, I, I'm always fascinated by, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to suddenly become a astrophysicist and, you know, start calculating all of these things. But I certainly appreciate understanding, um, you know, some of these things. And, you know, one of the, one of the more humbling things that I learned was when I was with Brian Cox's show, that our ability to influence is limited. So let me explain. If we had the brightest light and the loudest audio signal possible, and we sent them off in a direction, and there was someone just beyond 13 billion light years away, they would never hear us because space is expanding faster than the speed of light. And beyond that 13 billion year barrier, we will never have any influence. And being that the observable universe is 90 billion light years, and while 13 and 90 sound close, the actual distances are just unimaginable, right? It, it makes me feel like, I don't know, less significant somehow. That, that, you know, not that I thought there was someone out there to communicate with that's going to come back to us so quickly and easily, but it's just humbling to hear something like that in my mind. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it very much is. It's, it, it's interesting to watch people's perspective change for those who can start to wrap their mind around um, just kind of where we are in the universe. Uh, I know it's Sagan's popular quote that says uh, that astronomy is a humbling and character building experience. And, and I truly believe that that is an accurate statement. Um, I've had moments of just, you know, revelation while standing outside and looking up. And when you explain to people that the planets all travel on the ecliptic, which is a flat disc sort of shape in the uh, solar system. And so they're all along a straight line. And like right now is a perfect example. If you step outside tonight, you can look off to the west and you'll see Jupiter and then Saturn. Um, if you can't, well, you can't see it, but trust me, it's there. Pluto is in between the two of them. Uh, just past those, Neptune is a little bit to the uh, south from uh, Saturn. And then if you continue on, you'll see Mars over in the east. 
and a little bit past Mars, Uranus is uh, just a little bit past that to the east as well. So right now you can actually look up in the night sky and see every single planet to include the Earth because you're standing on it all in one line. And once you realize that, if you start to imagine it, you can see, well, that's the path of the solar system. And we always think of, you know, the solar system is kind of flat and up is up. Uh, that means that I'm standing somewhat sideways <laughs> on this planet. Well, then the Earth starts to feel like a big round sphere, and I'm not on top of it. I'm now pointed kind of 45 degrees out into space. Uh, and you just start to get this weird feeling of, I'm, you know, the Earth isn't what we thought it was. <laughs> It's not just some flat little area. It's a, it's a thing. It's our little spaceship flying through the universe. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we, we've probably all heard the joke that someone can't see beyond the edge of their own nose. And here we're seeing beyond the capability of our own eyes at such a distance that I think that's an important thing for us to have as a, as a perspective that is beyond our own, something that challenges us. And it does give us that realization of who we are, where we are, and, and what that maybe means to us as individual. But collectively, I think we can all appreciate, you know, the mass scale that we're on, the complexity that we're seeing and how, you know, uh, an unbelievable imagining, an unbelievable number of events have occurred for us to even stand here. So to me, I think looking up uh, is a lot about looking in too. Oh, yeah, it, it definitely is. And it, uh, you know, you mentioned the idea of our our place in the universe or our importance and how that's changed throughout the different discoveries that we have. Um, I think that there's something else that I've seen. Uh, if you look up the pale blue dot, if you've never Googled that, I'd recommend taking a look at it. Um, it's a shot by one of the Voyager satellites that are now extrasolar system uh, distances away. They've been the furthest thing humanity's ever put out. Um, at one point, uh, they turned one of them back and took a family portrait of the solar system and were able to get the different planets and, and they snapped a shot from Earth and that's the furthest thing we've ever had as far as a long distance selfie. And if you look at it, Earth comes out as this pale blue dot and it's a you know, fraction of a pixel and there it is just hanging in space. And one of the revelations that people take away from that is, imagine if we saw a planet in another galaxy or another solar system or whatever, which we can now start to see, frankly, with our telescopes. Uh, imagine if you look at that and you heard that the people on that planet were killing one another over resources, or they were you know, committing racism on one another, or, or anything that just seems kind of crazy when you think, well, they're all on that little dot together. Why are they fighting so hard to kill each other? Uh, that sort of thought then makes you want to look backward at us and say, well, what if they're looking at us? You know, why are we behaving in ways like that? Especially, I mean, especially if you consider that, you know, we don't even know if there's other complicated life out there. I think there's some pretty good consensus that there's some simple life is probably most certain. But if it takes 3 billion years and we're the only model we know of, so it's the only standard we can think of, to create life is complicated then there may or may not be other life out there. And, and I think that in itself makes it precious. And for us to, I guess, waste that or use it in some way that uh, doesn't respect the rare and specialness of it, it, it bothers me on a fundamental level. So I'm right there with you. I wish, I wish people could have that perspective and think about it. And I, and I am familiar with that um, image. And it, it's funny, I didn't think about that um, in preparing for this um, interview, but 
I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, you know, it is, you know, we put it in today's terms of selfie, right? Because that's what we're familiar <laughs> with. But it is, it's, it is a humbling reminder that in, in this vastness that's out there, we are but a speck among a speck. And if you go far enough away, we're not even a speck, right? No. And so I think, I think there's some humbling that happens with that and some realization that we, um, we could do things better, I guess. And I think we should all strive for that, I guess, is what, that's what the message it brings to me. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it, it ends up feeling a little frustrating sometimes when you see people um, find ways to you know, group themselves into a, I'm, I'm this group and you're that group. And, and then they come up with their differences and it causes angst amongst them because it's the us's and the them's. And, and in reality, we're all in us. We're all, we're all here together. Um, and I think that's something that once you kind of, you know, step back, don't worry about you know, your, your kind of terrestrial problems for a night and peer through a telescope or, or just go out and even look at the Milky Way and, and watch that stuff and start to try and get your mind around the reality of existence and how big it is and how little we are. I think part of that can help us look past some of those differences and and, you know, a big part of why I've been getting online, which I'm always hesitant to do, frankly, but uh, getting on there and putting these things out is because I truly believe that that is something that I would like to be a part of is helping people understand that. And, you know, I, I think when you cut through all of the perceived differences, I think we hold many of the same values. Um, I think if you look from a values perspective, um, in many cases, we probably want the same things how we get there is maybe different. And so I, I value that in, in this space, um, you know, you, you do, you see a lot of garbage on the internet and it's probably some of the worst of humanity. Right. And, you know, because people are, are, are somewhat anonymous and they feel free to share things and whether they truly mean them or whether they just want to start some garbage or whatever, you never know. But, you know, in this particular project, I've seen I've seen some amazing posts with some just in fascinatingly inf interesting information. That's what drew me to, you know, the post of the picture you did. And it's I think it's important that we try to connect and, and understand each other from this perspective. And you and I have never met. We may never meet, but we both value something. Obviously, you've taken it to another level. But the perspective can still be the same. The, the fundamental value of understanding and having a, a perspective of ourselves that we don't get any other way. You're not going to get this by just running around and worrying about, as you say, your terrestrial problems, right? You got to take a step aside and, and, and push through that. So I, I think this gets to the heart of what my project is focused on. And that is connecting with people about, you know, interesting things having a, a real conversation and understanding, you know, that we do have some similar values and that there is something bigger out there. And in this case, it's literally the universe around us. So I, I find this fascinating and I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a, it's been a pretty interesting thing as far as I'm concerned too, to you know, bring that to people. I think the, 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 just the eyes when people look through the telescope for their first time, um, which I've seen a number of people do that. I, I've set my telescope up for telescope parties and things before, and um, everybody has their expectations of what they think they're going to see or what they want to see and, and whatnot. And um, it almost never matches that. It's either 
they're used to the images from Hubble and why am I not seeing those or it's uh, or it's even more grand which is I think more often than not the things they see are more grand than what I think they thought their eyes would present them uh, I know that was the way I felt the first time I saw Saturn hanging in the sky just you know you couldn't wipe the smile off my face and it was it was just almost too beautiful to be a real thing that hangs out there in nature you know, it's funny. You, you just gave me an idea. I'm, I'm an idealist. I, I believe in um, us working together. I have no problem at a four-way stop sign stopping when it's my turn to stop because I believe that's part of the social contract and what we have to do. And we've been talking about something that, you know, has a budgetary requirement, has a learning requirement. It takes time and dedication. In your article, you talk about the weight and difficulty of certain telescopes and moving them in and out of the house and, you know, all the parts that go with them. But you just said something that again, is fascinating. You said telescope party. And as soon as we can gather back in groups again, um, safely, uh, which I'm hoping is very soon, maybe, maybe people with your skill set, um, you know, hosting telescope parties and, and giving people perspectives, maybe, maybe small groups at a time, maybe one person at a time, people get that perspective. And, you know, if someone were to offer a telescope party to me, I would happily go attend because to me, I'm going to get to see something that I maybe not have the, the inclination, inclination, inclination to do on my own. Um, but I could see enjoying that. I could see someone setting it up and it could be something as simple as Saturn in the rings and being, wow, you know, you see an image of it, but then you see it for real in a telescope and I'm sure it is different. And I, and maybe that gives that slight little bit of perspective we're talking about to people. So for anyone who's listening, who has this ability, I'm going to say maybe when, when COVID is over and it's safe, that we start the hashtag telescope party and we invite some neighbors in and we start taking a look together. Cause I think that would be an amazing thing socially. Yeah. And no, I, I completely uh, am all about that. I've actually started my own small business to do exactly that. Um, unfortunately that business started in about January and it has had almost no business this year. So <laughs> there's been that. Um, but yeah, that, that was that's something I've found with like people wanting to either be an astrophotographer as a hobby or, um, or folks just wanting to do something special for their kids or a Boy Scout, Girl Scout troop, things like that. Uh, my intent was always to, uh, you know, be a teacher, bring that sort of thing out. I love teaching people new things, especially stuff that I believe is important, um, like this topic. And so I'd set that up such that I would be able to hopefully then you know, have somebody who has a group of whomever, you know, want to do something uh, morale building for their office or, or anything like that. And try to then get them to be able to call me and have me come set up a telescope that they otherwise probably wouldn't purchase and do that sort of uh, thing. And, and in the times that I have gotten to do it for some kind of closer family and friends during this, it's, you know, it's been really interesting. I've learned a lot about how to, you know, better teach this stuff to people too. Um, so I think that there's, I think there's definitely some avenue for that to at least be something where, you know, people can gather around and it's something special. Um, and they can, and frankly, in one way they can tie into kind of our, our natural ancestral heritage of going out and looking at the night sky and getting our entertainment from that, as opposed to perhaps just face down on the internet, which tends to be kind of more and more our move these days. So hopefully there is something more out there for us. I never thought about it that way that, you know, the original entertainment was the sky and somehow we've gone to, you know, the pixels we see up there to the flashing pixels on a screen and maybe we should spend some time back. Cause I can tell you with COVID, 
my work has been uh, very good to us. Uh, unfortunately, I, I have to work a lot from home and the in-house screen time is just unbelievable. I, I specifically chose a career that didn't uh, have me sitting in front of a desk in my entire life because I would go nuts. But here I'm stuck with it. And it's funny because I had mentioned before about, you know, going for a walk with my wife and, and it's now more and more important. And I find myself looking up and we're pointing out things. And there was that comet that came by. God, it was a few months ago. We took. Uh, yes. There's actually been uh, there's been two kind of big comments in the last year. Um, the one that you're probably referring to is uh, uh, everybody calls it Neowise, um, which is uh, if anybody ever sees a comet, just gee whiz, FYI trivia. The name on there, if it's an all caps thing like that, and it says that was uh, I think that was 2020. Uh, Y4 Neowise, perhaps I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, Neowise is actually the name of the sensor, the satellite sensor that discovered it, or the uh, I don't know if it's a satellite or not, but whatever sensor discovered it, someone was pouring through that data and they found it. And that's where the name Neowise comes from. So you actually can see many comet Neowises because it'll discover more than one. Uh, but if you were to ever discover a comet yourself, not using some other satellite or ground-based uh, data source, you actually get to name it after yourself. <laughs> so here's hoping we can pull that off. <laughs> would be your next accolades beyond uh, NASA picking you for the photo of the day? I think that would be really cool to be able to get my own comment. <laughs> um, it's, it's tougher and tougher because all of these computerized data sources are just scouring the sky all the time. And so for you to beat one of them is probably a challenge. Uh, yeah, but that yeah. doesn't mean it's impossible. It's a big sky and there's a lot to look at out there. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, do you want to share your social medias where people could follow you? Oh, yeah, please. Um, so I am, uh, I go by the handle Night Sky Flying, um, just Night Sky and uh, trying to take people on a flying adventure through it is kind of where that all came from. So Night Sky Flying. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram. That's where I've got uh, the preponderance of my work. I make sure I have a feed set up there that features pretty much every one of my images. Uh, I cross post most of them over to Facebook as well under the same username, uh, as well as Twitter, um, although Twitter doesn't seem to be very big in the astrophotography world. Um, and then similarly, I sell my stuff on a uh, website called nightskyflying.com. You can go and find prints of my work there and, and all of that. Uh, if you are interested, however, in getting one directly from me, I have a local print shop that I like to support who does work on uh, nothing but aluminum, uh, which is a great medium for these images. So they come out incredibly clean and professional looking, and she does a great job packaging them and shipping them out to people uh, all over the country. So... Um, anything like that. Um, and as well, I guess I do have a new product that just came out uh, and produced a calendar in which I put in all the significant dates for, um, for astronomy events that will occur in 2021. And then loaded that with my astrophotography images each month. And as well, it has a, a page you can cut off on the back to use as a year at a glance thing and throw that up on your wall. So you can keep track of whatever's coming up and not miss an item for any of our big significant things that are coming our way. That's, that's really nice. I mean, I, I see them in the news on occasion and I try to remember them. I wish I had some kind of like uh, reminder on my phone. It would just say, hey, go look outside at this. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I would probably do that more. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, it's always something like that. People find these these activities very interesting. Uh, but unless you really keep up with it, it's not our it's not our society's kind of day to day entertainment anymore. So you're far more likely to hear about some sort of reality TV event than you are <laughs> the next big astronomy item. Right. Um, so 
as much as I'm not trying to just produce merchandise for the sake of merchandise, I really wanted the calendar to be something that I personally would hang on the wall and use because it could tell me, hey, the opposition of Jupiter is coming up next month. Get ready for it. Yeah. And I, so I tried to endeavor to make it look like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about some of the things to do if you're getting started, I, I'm going to link again the article, this PETA Pixel article that you wrote, because I think it has some good information. Um and wrapping up here, what what is the next project you're working on that we could look forward to seeing on Instagram? Um, so I am um, trying to dive into more of the deep sky photography right now. Um, the planetary season has kind of ended. Uh, those were all present really during the summer. We've hit the opposition of every planet in the sky, and they're going to start to fade into the eastern horizon. So as we approach winter, we get a, a bunch of really cool targets that – most people don't realize are there. I mean, we're all familiar with Orion and Orion's belt and the big constellation thereof. Uh, what we don't realize is if you get to a dark site and look up at Orion's belt, you can see his sword hanging down there. The middle star on Orion's sword has one of the brightest nebula in the entire uh, night sky for us. It's one of the few places where we as people can walk outside, look up, and see a stellar nursery where stars are being born. And so we can go out there and we can see that. And, uh, and it's just a big, you know, beautiful thing, but it's, it's really faint for our eyes. And so my next uh, sort of project set is to take that and the Andromeda galaxy and go work on those, which are prominent night targets and really work on getting my, uh, my auto guiding process for deep sky photography down. That sounds very, very interesting. I, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear you know, people talk about nebulas and, and, you know, different, different parts of the universe that are out there. And, you know, I, I, I took a, uh, a class in college and we talked about, you know, protostars and protoplanets and these big gas clouds and how the weight and gravity of them eventually compresses down to create something. And so when you talk about the engine that makes uh, part of our solar system, to me, that's always fascinating because that's literally the building blocks of what we sit on every day. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a pretty, <laughs> it's an in-depth topic that it, it's it got so much because it is both the story of the smallest little molecule and how it interacts gravitationally with something else to combine into something bigger. Um, and then it, it ends up, once you unpack it all, it delves into the entire story of us because we're all made from the same stuff. Um, so you can really wave top it and be a, hey, here's kind of how the universe works and go all the way down into the minutiae physics of it. Um, it, it's a pretty impressive topic that you can bring anyone together with, no matter their learning level or their education, because we all at some basic level can understand that we're part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we go, is there anything else you want to share with the audience that I haven't asked? No, I just want to say thanks. I really appreciate being a part of this. And uh, if anybody would like to hit me up, um, you're more than welcome to contact me at either Instagram, just via direct message. Uh, I'm, I really, like I said, like teaching. And so I get questions all the time about how to do this, how to make it better, how to, how to get started. So feel free to come find me at uh, Night Sky Flying. And if uh, you'd rather, you can hit me right up on email, nightskyflying at gmail.com. And I'm available whenever you guys want. Fantastic. And I would enjoy doing another interview. And hopefully we get a chance to host one of those telescope parties with a few more guests. This is the first episode of the VoIP show. And I have enjoyed you as a guest. And I look forward to seeing more of your images. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate being your first guest.